Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Friday, January 21st, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how a new technique for 3D printing metal could revolutionize manufacturing, plus the great potential of the false banana, and archaeology's sexual revolution. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. From 3D bioprinting organs to 3D food printing of alternative meats, the 3D printing world is really on fire right now, with lots of promise for big innovations in the coming years. But there's another type of 3D printing that could have huge impacts on manufacturing, metal 3D printing. Now, when a lot of people think of 3D printing, they think of plastic items printed layer by layer from a digital design, which is what most of 3D printing has been for decades. But metal 3D printing has been taking off in recent years, and one startup in particular got a lot of buzz last week after raising $21 million in Series B funding, an extension on their earlier $41 million Series B funding round last summer. Like other startups working on metal 3D printing, Surat Technologies has its sights on revolutionizing the manufacture of large industrial products, like planes and cars and consumer electrics, something that would substantially reduce the cost and the carbon footprint of production. As metal 3D printing currently functions, however, it's a very slow process that would be unable to scale to the level needed to really have an impact. But Surat thinks they have the answer. Their method for acceleration is something they call their area printing process, which, quoting an article in 3D Printing Industry, involves focusing more than 2 million points of laser light onto a metal powder bed, which can be fine-tuned to rapidly create end-use parts. End quote. Axios explains a bit further, quote, A 30-kilowatt laser is patterned with high-resolution images that can be programmed to block or let light through each of its pixels. Every pixel defines its own laser spot, so the system can weld a large area of metal powder in an instant, allowing a multi-layered object to take shape ten times faster than today's 3D printing technology. End quote. And again from 3D Printing Industry, quote, Within the automotive sector, the company sees potential applications for its technology in producing on-demand spares and prototyping components for next-gen electric vehicles, while it believes that the inherent scalability and spatter-free nature of its process also make it ideal for producing large-format parts with industrial applications, end quote. And Axios points out that were it to work on a large scale, the U.S.'s fragile supply chain could be, quote, 
reimagined using low-cost print depots to manufacture parts domestically at high volume where and when they're needed, end quote. And Surratt Technologies is not shy about how revolutionary they think this could be. CEO and co-founder James DeMuth said last summer, quote, Surratt is bringing to market a completely revolutionary technology. Think evolving from writing a letter to the advent of the printing press, but with lasers printing metal parts, end quote. Bold words, but the company does now have deals with what it says are seven of the largest automotive, aerospace, energy, and industrial companies on Earth to start commercializing their tech this year. Interestingly, DeMuth also explained in a Medium post last year how the idea came to him when he was working on energy fusion at the U.S. Department of Energy's Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. He and others were working on a design for a reaction chamber that could hold up to the drastic temperature changes that occur with the use of lasers to produce energy, eventually coming up with an adaptation of an existing light method used for other purposes on other projects at the lab. But DeMuth had the idea to repurpose the tech once more for metal 3D printing. Took a few years to crack and far more to secure funding, but now it looks like the curiosity and hard work might be paying off. I mean, 3D printed cars. I'm not exactly sure if this is where it would go because IP would be a whole issue. Who knows how common these print shops might be, but just imagine eventually being able to have like a particular specific car part 3D printed on demand when it breaks down instead of needing to wait for days or weeks for that part to be shipped from somewhere. Now, overall, the impacts on the auto industry are something I'd be curious to see the advantages and disadvantages to, but the general idea of being able to mass 3D print metal products, even beyond cars, you know, electronics and stuff like that, is intriguing and something that's feeling closer to reality than it has before. Pseudo-banana False banana. Banana on steroids. These are just a few nicknames for the Enset, an Ethiopian crop from the banana family that some think could help reduce food insecurity far beyond its native home. Atlas Obscura describes the Enset as looking like banana plants, harvesting like a root vegetable, and tasting like flatbread, saying that it's much more potato-like than banana-like despite its genetic makeup. In Ethiopia, the stems and root of the inset, once pulped and fermented, are used to make foods like porridge and bread. The actual banana-looking part, the kind of pod, is inedible. While the inset is only grown in one part of Ethiopia, related species, which are fully inedible, have been found as far south as South Africa, which is one reason why some scientists believe the inset itself, with its edible roots and stems, could be cultivated far beyond where it's currently found. And if it can be cultivated over a wider area, it can be used to help feed millions of more people. Quoting the BBC, Using agricultural surveys and modeling work, scientists predicted the potential range of NSET over the next four decades. They found the crop could potentially feed more than 100 million people and boost food security in Ethiopia and other African countries, including Kenya, Uganda, and Rwanda. Study researcher Dr. James Borrell of the Royal Botanic Gardens Q said planting NSET as a buffer crop for lean times could help boost food security. It's got some really unusual traits that make it absolutely unique as a crop, he said. You plant it at any time, you harvest it at any time, and it's perennial. That's why they call it the tree against hunger, 
end quote. NSAID is also drought resistant, which adds to its utility as a good backup when other seasonal crops might fail. In addition to the myriad of reasons some communities across Africa already experience food insecurity, the climate emergency is likely to make things worse across the globe. The BBC notes that almost half of all the calories we consume come from just three species, rice, wheat, and maize. So as extreme weather events affect crop yields, there's a growing urgency to diversify the foods we eat and where they can be grown. Given NSAID's reputation as a nutritional superfood and its starchy ability to be used in breads and porridges, it's a top contender for an alternative crop to fill the gap. Not to mention, in Ethiopia, NSET has also been used for all manner of other applications like cattle feed, construction, packaging, dishware, medicine, and more. Perhaps NSET will become more common outside of Ethiopia in the future, but we'll need more than just this one particularly talented crop. As Dr. Burrell told the BBC, quote, We need to diversify the plants we use globally as a species because all our eggs are in a very small basket at the moment. End quote. I took a biological anthropology class my junior year at NYU for one of my science credits. This was only 11 years ago, but it's amazed me since then just how much of what I learned has been thrown into question because so much has been happening so quickly in the field of anthropology and archaeology in particular. Advances in technology are throwing so many long-held assumptions into question. One of those is how to identify the sex of skeletons. Now, back at NYU, we were taught that the main way to do this is by examining the bones, a method called osteology, and looking for differences in key bones, like the pelvis, which are meant to give an indication if the person was male or female. There are a number of shortcomings here. For one, it's not super consistent or reliable. The difference between bones of males and females is hormone-driven, according to Durham University bioarchaeologist Rebecca Goland, speaking to The Guardian in a recent article. Since the changes are hormone-driven, bones pretty much look the same for children, and for teenagers, it can be a real toss-up. Also, it's pretty rare to get an entire skeleton. If you get a whole pelvis, you really lucked out. Even for Lucy, the famous Australopithecus specimen, archaeologists only recovered half a pelvis. There's also the often overlooked consideration of intersex skeletons. Their sex would only be able to be determined from chromosomal analysis. But just such an analysis is one of the new methods on the block. The Guardian published a piece earlier this week dubbing this current moment Archaeology's Sexual Revolution, writing about recent advancements in DNA analysis of specimens. Innovations in DNA analysis over the past few years can take much more of the genome into account, beyond just genes that link to sex chromosomes, but even those are having big impacts. For example, back in 2009, archaeologists uncovered a 5th century gravesite in which one of the graves contained two skeletons, holding hands. The specimens were nicknamed the Lovers of Modena, the town in Italy where they were found, with press proclaiming how the pair proved that, quote, love between a man and a woman can really be eternal, end quote. But three years ago, improved DNA analysis was able to show that, actually, both specimens were male. There's also the case of a skeleton from medieval Finland that was found buried in female dress and with swords. DNA analysis in this case showed that the person had XXY chromosomes, or Klinefelter syndrome, one of many intersex conditions. 
And the most famous case of an assumed sex being revised was in 2017, when a Viking warrior that had been presumed since the 1800s to be male was proven by new DNA analysis to actually be female. As you might imagine, the implications of all of these new revelations have caused a bit of a stir in archaeology. Rather than admit that a woman may have been a Viking warrior, or that a female-bodied person may have identified and lived as a man, either knowingly or not, to his community, a phenomenon well-documented throughout time and across cultures, some scholars instead said we should reevaluate what the presence of weapons in a grave means, and what merited the status of warrior. Similarly, when the hand-holding skeletons were found to both be male, many jumped to say they were brothers or just close friends. And yes, any number of those things could have been true. Of course, none of us know. But as The Guardian put it, quote, "...old ideas about male and female grave goods produce interpretations that are at best conventional and at worst biased. This is especially apparent when both feature in the same grave, such as the Viking grave discovered in 1867 at Santon Downham in Norfolk." Most of the literature says it's a double grave, says Gareth Williams, a curator at the British Museum, but there's no evidence to actually support that. Only one skeleton, since lost, was originally reported. Rather than a double grave, the more obvious explanation could be a single grave of a person who did not strictly conform to gender norms. Williams thinks the grave probably contained a sword-wielding woman because there were strict taboos against wearing anything that could be seen as effeminate for Viking men. End quote. And Pamela L. Geller, a bioarchaeologist specializing in queer and feminist studies at the University of Miami, told The Guardian, quote, There's a real lack of creativity about how other people lived their lives, because we are so wedded to the categories that we have in place now. End quote. And as technology develops, it can help us get a better understanding. For example, there are big strides being made in the realm of tooth enamel analysis, which is particularly useful for determining the sex of prepubescent specimens. But even armed with cutting-edge technology and advanced knowledge of past cultures, we still come up against our own contemporary biases. There is so much we can just never know without speaking to the humans who once housed these bones. As The Guardian put it, quote, "...the dead don't bury themselves." But clearly, they don't excavate themselves either. End quote. Well, a couple of weird news items to leave you with for the weekend. First, The Great British Bake Off is apparently being made into a musical. Not like a musical episode, a full-length stage musical in England. Opening this summer and developed in association with the TV show's executive producer, the musical comedy will follow eight amateur bakers attempting to impress the judges. The synopsis reads, quote, Follow the trials and tribulations of our bakers, all with their own stories to tell and as unique from one another as their marvelous baked creations. Find out who will triumph as star baker and who will fall foul of a soggy bottom. End quote. Now, I gotta say, at first I was perplexed how a reality competition show could be made into a musical, but reading the synopsis, it kind of sounds like a chorus line or the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, where the competition is there, yes, but the show is really about telling the personal stories of each of the contestants. So, maybe this will work. Tickets are already on sale for the summer, so if you are in the UK or planning to go, you can check it out and let the rest of us know how it is. 
In other news, you know Cameo, the site where you can pay celebrities to send video messages as gifts? Like, you can get Tony Hawk or Brian Baumgartner from The Office or a ton of TikTokers and reality show stars to record personalized messages for anywhere from 20 to a couple hundred bucks. I have a lot of thoughts about Cameo that maybe I will eventually dig into, but the newest personality to join the app is Punxsutawney Phil, a.k.a. the official Groundhog Day Groundhog, who tells us whether or not we will be getting six more weeks of winter. You can now order a personal video message from the great prognosticator himself. Or, well, since he is actually a real groundhog and can't talk, he kind of just sits there while his AJ handler, decked down in the traditional suit and top hat, conveys the message. So, if you were looking for that perfect Groundhog Day gift for your loved one, they've got you covered. But that is it from me for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.